Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. The Bowery Boys episode 341, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome back, Greg. Thank you. Two great shows in a row there, Tom. Oh, stop. Today we are celebrating 150 years in the history of one of America's greatest museums, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Met is really the king of New York tourist attractions. Last year, in fact, more than 7 million visitors from 200 countries visited the Met's galleries. Uh, They packed into its blockbuster exhibitions and, and took in its priceless works of art. And really, Greg, I mean, who doesn't love getting lost at the Met for an afternoon? Oh, yeah. I mean, from one end to the other, from the Greek and Roman galleries to the Egyptian mummies, a personal favorite. Mm-hmm. Or, the, or the 19th century European collection, the Impressionists, perhaps my favorite, or the, the modern collection, the Temple of Dendur. Or the American wing and that beautiful sculpture garden in front of it. And of course, the fashion. The museum and the museum story is really almost overwhelming. Yeah, we have to confess that it is difficult to tell the history of a place like the Met, which has over 2 million objects in its permanent collection, which, you know, taken together is all trying to tell the story of human civilization. Oh, is that all? (laughs) And clearly we don't have time to try to tackle the story of human civilization right now. So instead, today we'll be talking about the history of the institution that Mm -hmm. is the Met and of some of its major collections and donors, and of also, you know, of the Met's relationship with New York City. The notion of what a public museum is at all changes during the decades here, and the Met does also change with the times, albeit slowly, (laughs) from an elite destination for Gilded Age treasures to a more welcoming and all-encompassing collection, which ultimately proves to be quite popular with the general public. Plus, later, I'll be speaking with Andrea Bayer, the Deputy Director for Collections and Administration at the Metropolitan Museum and the organizer of the current exhibition, Making the Met, which celebrates the museum's 
first 150 years. Among other things, we'll be discussing some of the challenges that they have faced this year, because how do you properly celebrate your big anniversary during a pandemic? So get in the proper frame of mind as we explore the history of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Tom, I have been waiting to situate the Metropolitan Museum of Art for over 13 years. <laughs> I'm glad you can, because okay? I get lost every time I go in there. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, It actually is hard to situate in certain galleries, but for this show, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is located on Fifth Avenue between East 80th and East 84th Streets within Central Park. Now, the museum itself dates from a charter in 1870, but the first core building that we'll be discussing here actually opened in 1880, with many more buildings and galleries, you know, almost spiraling out from there, a total of 2.2 million square feet. So it wasn't planned as as the massive structure it is today, but it's rather a collection of many smaller buildings that have been linked together. Yeah, I mean, I I think of it like when I was young and my parents added a garage to the house, you know, and all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, the new area of the house. Well, just imagine the original Met founders, if they had added hundreds and hundreds of garages to store millions of artifacts. It's probably the only time that your garage in Springfield, Missouri has been compared to the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum of Art. And the Met is more than just this structure or collection of structures here on Fifth Avenue because the Met also owns the Cloisters Museum in Upper Manhattan that specializes in medieval European art. So how it's designed today, it's it's most of what you're going to see are, is actually contained on two main floors filled with galleries with a, f- a few other exhibitions, you know, on the, some small third floor galleries or mezzanines. There's also a ground floor that's home to the education and the textile centers. And of course, rooftop access, which is usually given over to one big outdoor contemporary art installation. And which has perhaps our favorite bar in the city. But as you said, for the most part, when you visit today, most of the main galleries are on the level that you walk in on and the Great Hall or the level up the stairs. Even if you're walking between a collection of old buildings that are linked together, most of the galleries are on those those two levels. In the modern layout today, those galleries essentially radiate out from the Great Hall. So that's where most people enter, is the Great Hall. And the collections that are on display here run the gamut of art from all across human civilizations. Wait, are you, are you actually going to try to get through all the collections? 
Oh, yes. Here oh, we go, Tom. Are you ready? So from south to okay. north, right, when you walk in, or left to right, first you have the, the Greek and Roman art. Next is arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas. Modern and contemporary art, European sculpture and decorative art, medieval art, the American wing, which features American art, arms and armors. And finally, to the far north is Egyptian art. So what are the galleries up a flight? Again, from south to north, you have more Greek and Roman art, as well as artifacts from the ancient Near East. The art of the Arab lands, then 19th and 20th century European paintings and sculpture, next to some smaller galleries devoted to photographs. Then you have more modern and contemporary art. Then in the just sort of like great big center second level gallery, you have European paintings featuring the masters of the Renaissance. And that gallery is a gallery that's when you walk in straight up the stairs, right? Directly up the stairs, sort of mm -hmm. the, the center of the museum, kind of a place of honor. Now, out from that, further north, more from the American wing, then the intriguing and recently renovated musical instruments wing, and finally, you'll find Asian art. In addition, at the center of the museum, but very back or westernmost part of the museum, you have the Robert Lehman Collection, which, as the name implies, is an art collection from one specific individual, namely Robert Lehman of Lehman Brothers. And in many of the galleries are named for these wealthy benefactors. And we'll get to that in a moment. It's a major theme of the whole show. But on that first floor is often a place where you'll find rotating and traveling exhibitions. Thank you for that epic clockwise tour on two levels of the Met. That is mm -hmm. the way I've never experienced or seen the museum before. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> how did we even get here? I mean, what, what did New York even have um, in terms of museums before 1870 when the Met was established? Um, yeah, you had like Barnum's American hey, Museum. Hey, don't knock I mean, it. Don't really, knock it. I mean, really, you, you didn't have much. Uh, you know, certainly nothing to compare to the British Museum, which opened in the 1750s, or the Louvre, which opened in the 1790s. We did, however, have the New York Historical Society, which was founded in 1804, and they saw their mission as collecting objects that preserved the early American story. But that did include an expansion into historical artifacts and even works of art and sculpture. But as we head here into the 1850s, it's sort of in terms of art collecting, you're going to have to turn your attention to the many wealthy families of New York City who were acquiring art for their own homes and personal collections, mostly, of course, unseen by the masses. And many of these private collections favored European artists and old masters. After all, many of New York's elite families were taking cues and fashioning themselves after their counterparts in Europe. But what about American artists? Well, American art in before 1870 didn't have much of an international profile or honestly, even a distinctive, unique style. You had painters of the Hudson River School uh, who used European landscape styles uh, to render a version of the new expanding United States. Yeah, like Asher Durand, for example. 
Uh, you also had American painters tackling great moments in American history, such as Washington crossing the Delaware by Emanuel Lutz, which is actually coincidentally at home here at the Met. But still, for the most part, European art was still more highly favored. So you've got the New York Historical Society, uh, you've got wealthy New York families, only getting wealthier by the day um, at this point during the Mm -hmm. Gilded Age, who are collecting art. So then how did we get an art museum up here? Well, you can thank the development of Central Park. The winning design of this park was by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. And in that design, the Greensward Plan, they called for a museum. Uh, They were actually going to place it in the old Arsenal building, which had once stored arms for the New York City militia. Now, the Arsenal actually predates the creation of Central Park. And that building today sits next to the Central Park Zoo. So the Central Park Plan allotted space for a museum, and the New York Historical Society was looking for a, a, a larger space. So... Why didn't Uh the New York Historical Society move into the arsenal then? Well, unfortunately, over the years here, uh, they weren't doing well financially. They actually ran out of money. Then, after the Civil War, there were some changes made to the Central Park plan here, moving the future location of said museum actually further north, up to Fifth Avenue and 82nd Street. By this point, in post-war New York, you had many prominent citizens clamoring for the idea of a great museum. One of these men being a prominent lawyer named John Jay. Wait, wait, John Jay? Like the, the founding father John Jay? How old was he? No, actually, this is his grandson. Ah. You know you know how really wealthy people name their kids after themselves? Well, this was his grandson, the grandson of America's first chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was also president of the Union League Club, which was a society club created during the Civil War and, and which, you know, as the name implies, was very pro-Union. And then after the war, they were, of course, looking for a new cause. Jay then got the Union League excited about backing a premier institution. So they form a committee, this loftily named Committee of 50, with plans for, quote, the establishment in this city of a museum of art on a scale worthy of this metropolis and of a great nation, unquote. And by January 1870, they had a constitution. And then by April 13th, 1870, they officially had a state charter. Now, this this story is starting to sound very familiar, Greg. Um, it's starting to sound like mm-hmm. the same story of another institution across the park. And I'm not talking about the Historical Society, but next door, the Museum of Natural History which was starting up at about the same time and was also even considering locating inside the arsenal. Their roots are in the arsenal, in fact. These these are two twin institutions in many ways here, the Met and the Natural History. But the Natural History Museum would eventually go to the Upper West Side, as you said, facing into the park, whereas the Metropolitan would develop its first building within the park, on Fifth Avenue, which after all was the avenue most associated with the Gilded Age. Given that most of these early acquisitions would be gifts from the very wealthiest people, this is a very perfectly symbolic placement. 
But that charter uh, was signed in 1870, but this museum didn't have any home. It didn't have a building. So where did they go? Yeah, I mean, so while work was going on up here in Central Park, the committee actually pulled together the museum's very first collection and then displayed it in a couple temporary homes, former mansions further south. Uh, The first one with an opening in February of 1872 in the Dodworth Building. And then, because that was actually a little too small, a year later, they moved into the West 14th Street mansion of the eccentric socialite Harriet Douglas Kruger. But but what did they display here in Miss Kruger's mansion? What was in their collection? Well, in 1870, they had one object. They had one single object. They had a Roman sarcophagus. But the following year, they purchased 174 old master paintings. And this is the collection that would lay the groundwork for the museum. And then, of course, you know, over this decade of the 1870s, they would continue to acquire items, including in 1872, a bust of Benjamin Franklin by Jean-Antoine Houdin, and also an intriguing set of antiquities from Cyprus. Now, you know, meanwhile, while people are looking at these lovely things downtown, there is a new museum structure Mm. being built here in Central Park. And honestly, like, who do you even turn to to design such a building that's going to have such a prominent place in New York City? Well, you turn to the same guy who's been designing many of the other structures in Central Park and who designed the park itself. And that would be, of course, Calvert Vox. And Vox would go about, you know, this project here, the the new Metropolitan Museum of Art, in much of the same way that he tackled his other structures, kind of in a in a bricky, high Victorian Gothic revival style. Um, and how did it look? Kind of ugly. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> well, it was. It turned out to be. It really didn't please anybody. It was kind of this barn-like brick museum uh, that looks really tiny today compared to you know what would follow and to be fair vox had a a master plan that he developed that envisioned you know a much larger imposing museum that stretched toward fifth avenue with six courtyards and this museum was just a a fraction of the size it was kind of like you know the first step toward getting to that bigger museum so that is what opened in March 1880, this kind of bricky thing set back from Fifth Avenue facing, by the way, Central Park. So when this finally opened here, was it open to the public or did it see itself kind of like a, a private club? It was intended and was chartered to be a space where all New Yorkers would come to find artistic enlightenment, uplift, We can debate how well that worked, um, especially at the beginning. We can debate whether that entire philosophy was condescending or elitist. But but clearly it was intended to be a public space because the public, after all, was paying for the building. The city was paying for the building and it was providing the land to the institution. At the opening ceremonies in 1880, Joseph Choate, who was a lawyer and a member of the board, stated famously that it wasn't meant to be a plaything for the idle rich, but rather a museum that, through world-class art, would, quote, tend directly to humanize, to educate, 
and refine a practical and laborious people. But then he continued prodding the city's wealthiest merchants and the bankers and the industrialists, you know, who are trustees and members, to contribute to this cause. Financiers should, quote, convert pork into porcelain, grain and produce into priceless pottery, the rude ores of commerce into sculptured marble, and railroad shares and mining stocks into the glorified canvas of the world's masters that shall adorn these walls for centuries. And did the, quote, masses, did they indeed come and were they indeed enlightened? Indeed they did. But as Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs point out in their book, Gotham, the institution, however, faced criticism almost immediately of snobbery. And one of the reasons for that were its opening hours, because it turned out that the museum was open to the general public throughout the week, but it was locked up and closed on Sunday, as were, you know, stores and offices. Um, so why should the museum be open? Yeah, I mean, this was a holy day for some, and, you know, many church-minded Met trustees just wanted to keep the museum closed that day. But for most working-class New Yorkers, Sunday was actually their only day off. People forget today that most work six days a week 100 years ago. Then, of course, you had hundreds of thousands of Jewish New Yorkers who didn't celebrate Sunday as a holy day of rest. Many of whom probably would have liked to go to the museum. Yeah, I mean, it was open during the week, but you know, no one who worked for a living could actually go. Employers in the 1880s weren't exactly known for giving free days, mental health days, right? <laughs> so keeping it closed on Sunday was a way to keep a class line drawn in regards to museum access. And this was confirmed in interviews with the very first director of the Met, Luigi Palma di Cesnola, who threatened to turn the heat off in the building if, quote, loafers, as he called them, were allowed entrance on Sunday. Quote, let the public go there and freeze. When they become stiff, I would set them up among the other groups of statuary, unquote. They really fought tooth and nail not to open on Sunday, even in the face of incredible pressure. To quote from the New York Times on November 10th, 1887, quote, Is it the Metropolitan Museum or is it the Puritanic Museum? If it is to be controlled by narrow Puritanic notions, let us change the name. But if it really is the Museum of the Metropolis, let it be conducted in accord with the almost unanimous sentiment of the people. Open the doors on Sunday, unquote. But finally, in 1891, because the state threatened to withhold future funding, the museum was forced to open on Sundays. The, the first Sunday being Sunday, May 31st, 1891. And pretty much immediately, Sunday would become the museum's most heavily attended day. Although by this time, by 1891, the museum's collection had vastly expanded, you know, with loads of new paintings and other works of art that had been donated to the museum by New York collectors. Did they have room for all of these these new acquisitions? Because that first museum was pretty small. Yeah, they had actually enlarged the museum. They had actually tossed aside 
Vox's plans for for future expansion because they didn't like his first step. Mm-hmm. So uh, so they drafted plans for a larger Victorian uh, brick museum that was designed by Theodore Weston, which extended the museum south in 1888 and north in 1894. And by the way, it is this southern facade that you can still visit today in the Petri European Sculpture Courts. And I just find it really fascinating that the that history is really peeking out from all over the place, not just in the actual art, but even in these former iterations of the building itself, just peeking out here or there in various mm-hmm. places throughout the museum. Now, what was it like going to the museum in the 1890s? Well, the ground floor of the museum uh, exhibited sculpture and also plaster casts. Um, which were a big thing back then. And then the second floor was reserved for European painting. So those were the three main collections. But again, the museum's collection would quickly grow to include so much more than that. Which would obviously require even more expansion, right? Mm -hmm. So when does it actually start looking more like the museum that we know and love today? Well, when the directors brought on the architect Richard Morris Hunt, who by this time had designed uh, the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. Uh, He had designed many, many mansions along Fifth Avenue and out of Newport, Rhode Island. And in 1895, Hunt presented the museum with a new Beaux-Arts master plan, which moved the main entrance out of the park and over to Fifth Avenue, where he gave the museum an imposing classical facade, you know, with projecting columns and statuary. And, and he also included a great hall that you would enter into with, with giant arches and domes and sculpture gardens as the northern and southern wings. And that structure that Richard Morris Hunt designed still exists today as the center part of the museum along Fifth Avenue that we know today. It's, it's that the main entrance, uh, the great hall, the central part of the museum that the stairs lead up to, the other wings north and south of it along Fifth Avenue would be added later. So what happens then to these older parts of the museum? Do they just tear that down and rebuild in its place or? No, no. The the older Victorian museum would stay. And that's actually one of the most amazing parts of the story because Hunt would just sort of float the old museum inside his design. You know, the the grand staircase that he would build when you walk into the Great Hall and you see the grand staircase there before you, that was designed by Hunt to lead up from his new Great Hall up to the second floor. You're basically passing from the new part into the older original structures. And Hunt's plan for the Met would be approved in 1895 and the new entrance would be completed in 1902. Who was in charge, really, during this whole period? Well, the museum had a board of directors uh, that was made up of some of, you know, the city's most prominent businessmen and philanthropists, the people who were charged with, you know, converting pork to porcelain. But there was also a director starting in 1879. There was a director named Luigi Palma di Cessnola, he who spoke so condescendingly about people visiting on Sunday. Yes. Mm-hmm. He would actually serve as the director of the museum for 25 years, from 1879 until 1904. And it was under Cessnola then, who was an incredibly colorful character, that the collection and the museum would would grow dramatically. And Dee Cessnola 
let's be clear here, was a very flamboyant character, a unique choice to really be the first director here of the museum. Quite a character. I mean, he was born in Sardinia. He served in the Union forces during the American Civil War. He was captured and held for nine months in a Confederate prison. But then after the war, he landed um, an American diplomatic post in Cyprus in the 1860s and 70s, during which time he excavated thousands of pieces of antiquity, okay, which people did back then, people in Mm -hmm. positions of power. Cessnola then hustled those pieces off to London to try to sell them in 1872. And there he shopped them around, and he finally found a buyer in, as you pointed out before, the Met. And so this collection of Cypriot treasures, 275 crates of them, arrived in New York way back in 1873. He would then return to Cyprus for a couple of years and then come back to eventually be named director of the museum in 1879 and, as I said, serve until 1904 throughout this whole first quarter of a century of the Met's history. But this does bring up the larger question of how the museum acquired artifacts and art. How did art come into the collection? Well, there were several ways. There's, there still are several ways. His story, Cessnola's story in Cyprus, actually illustrates two of them. The first being purchase, right? The Met, in this case, purchased Cessnola's collection, And the money for that was raised by the Mets members and trustees. The city was giving and the state would be giving money for the construction of the building and the land, but not for the collection. The collection was paid for by the members and trustees and by other operating revenues and such. I mean, could you imagine if the city was funding acquisitions? (laughs) We certainly wouldn't have the treasures that we have today. That is a true and kind of sad thought. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, there'd be these mega donors who would give huge sums of money to the museum to be used for acquisitions. This would happen, for example, in 1901, when Jacob Rogers, who had made a fortune manufacturing locomotives, died and gave a surprise gift of $5 million to the museum to be used for purchases. $5 million in 1901 is about $152 million today. And they could use that money, that donation, to buy anything? Well, they bought an artwork, you know, that came on the market. But the the real decision makers here, Cessnola and the trustees, definitely at the time had a preference for old European paintings, old masters, and not the new Impressionism style of painting that was coming out of France at that time. I mean, this is the 1870s and 80s. During that same period, you know, Edgar Degas was really busy painting ballet dancers. And the Met, <laughs> the Met could really have cared less. They were simply not interested in that kind of new painting. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, they weren't exactly interested in American paintings either. And especially not interested in paintings by New York artists either. In fact, Cessnola... I thought that New York painters were scammers. He called them, and I quote, humbugs. Equating them almost with a a Barnum exhibition. It's another Barnum parallel. But I think that the biggest increase in the museum's collection actually came from gifts, as in like collectors giving sometimes like one or two pieces of art, or sometimes an entire collection of thousands of pieces. 
given by, of course, some of America's wealthiest families. And some of these people, like J.P. Morgan, gave lots and lots of art while they were still living, but others gave their collections, sometimes in their entirety, when they died. Now, some of these amazing gifters, benefactors, just to name a few, included Henry Marcand, who in 1891 gave 50 European paintings. Benjamin Altman, the creator of B. Altman, the store, died in 1913 and left his fine collection, uh, which included a bunch of Rembrandts. Robert Lehman, who you brought up, uh, the head of Lehman Brothers, would gift an astonishing 2,600 works of art, including more than 100 Italian paintings. So many paintings that the museum would eventually build a special Lehman wing. Remarkable collections. Although, yeah, I mean, it does sound a little elitist, right? But it's also kind of complicated, right? Because you have huge fortunes uh, who are leaving their priceless art collections to the general public, basically, which is which is great. And yet it brings up the question of how did they amass those fortunes in the first place? Later in the show, I, I have a short interview with Andrea Bayer, the director of collections and administration at the Met and the organizer of the Making the Met exhibition. And I bring this up because they tackled this issue actually head on in a room displaying some of the treasures that came from another major gift in 1929 from Louisine and Henry Osborne Havemeyer, who had built a fortune in the sugar business, basically operating the company that would become Domino Sugar. The Havemeyers had gifted nearly 2,000 works of art, including many of the museum's best-known 19th century European paintings including 111 works by Degas, plus Rembrandts and Pissarro's and Monet's, Cezanne's, and, and many others. But the exhibition does sort of explore the complicated nature of both appreciating this incredible gift of art, but also understanding and exploring where that fortune came from, including the terrible working conditions that workers were subjected to in the early 1900s in the sugar business. Another interesting aspect of all these extraordinary gifts is the fact that it's kind of self-curation, right? I mean, the museum is accepting these gifts, but the gifts have been chosen and have been collected by these wealthy families, right? They weren't chosen to tell a story or an overarching historical narrative here. To use another uh, example from my childhood, <laughs> my, gr- my, gr- my grandfather used to have a flea market, you know, and, you know, where they have a bunch of booths lined up and you just walk around and you oh, buy yeah. old comic books and lunch boxes or whatever, mm. um, and Avon bottles. Coca-Cola memorabilia. <laughs> Lots of like rusted um, license plates and things and trays. You know, that did not tell the story of Americana in the early 20th century. Those were just his personal favorite things that he collected and represented him, right? So, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean to... Um, Diminish so, the Havemeyer's collection? Of Manet's and Degas, yes. (laughs) It's only that they chose these things based on their own personal tastes and the ability to acquire these things from wherever. So so in a way, the story that was being told was actually not this historical narrative, but the story of those benefactors themselves. And I didn't even mention J.P. Morgan's massive collection that he gave to the museum when he died in 1913— 
his collection included mostly objects and decorative pieces, um, not as many paintings, but the huge Honshell decorative arts collection that he purchased in Paris and shipped back, I mean, hundreds of crates, again, of all kinds of decorative arts, plus Etruscan and Greek and Cypriot art and medieval and sacred art. That all came to the Met as well. So clearly, the museum would need more space and would get an entire Morgan wing added to it. But now, pulling back to our story, having discussed how the museum gets its art in the first place, back to Cessnola, the museum director. In 1904, Cessnola dies. And this would mark the end of the Gilded Age era here of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Great changes, new innovations, and even a revolutionary new way to even look at their artifacts would await the institution in the 20th century. We'll get to the rest of the story of the Metropolitan Museum of Art after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. So with the election of J.P. Morgan, 
as the president of the trustees of the Met Museum. So not a not a director, but the head of the trustees, obviously. <laughs> now, Morgan and, did not take over Morgan, for Cessnola. Yeah, Morgan, Morgan's got a lot going on. In fact, he would generously donate his great collection when he died later. But here in 1904, when he is elected president, this marks a new era with programs for education and a greater willingness to appeal to the public but also to teach the public how to appreciate great works. So what was their idea? What was the new way that they wanted to arrange their collection? Well, according to their 1905 annual report, quote, it will be the aim not merely to assemble beautiful objects and display them harmoniously, still less to amass a collection of unrelated curio, but to group together the masterpieces of different countries and times in such relation and sequence as to illustrate the history of art in the broadest sense, to make plain its teachings, and to inspire and direct its national development. Wow, so kind of the the modern concept of museum planning, right? That the museum should be telling some kind of a story or a narrative. It's something, I guess we kind of take for granted today. Absolutely. And nobody, of course, does this better than the Met today. You know, because they have so many objects that they can use to tell a particular historical narrative. In addition, you know, to this, like, major reframing of their collections, they would also open their doors to art students offering educational programming, which is a very key fundamental of today's Met. I mean, Tom, there is like nothing that brings me more joy than going into a gallery at the Met and seeing an art student, Mm -hmm. you know, sitting there tracing and drawing. Um, I mean, it brings the whole place, it gives it a different kind of meaning as coming from someone who's not so artistically inclined. So wait, you've never actually been that student? No, I think they'd throw me out if they saw my, like, wretched renditions um, of Washington crossing the Delaware, let's just say. Were you an art student at the Met? I did try it once when I was in college. And let's just say, first of all, it's very intimidating because you're looking at, like, you know, the best that there is. The greatest. And, and the greatest. And there is a non-flow of spectators art-savvy spectators looking over your shoulder and comparing <laughs> it to the great masterpiece on the wall. It's, um, it's, not, for the, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> well, this new mindset at the Met, also they decide to expand the collection in many diverse places, which I wish we could get more into some of these because they're very fascinating. Places like textiles, musical instruments. Also, they begin building out historical collections that would prove to be real audience draws. Like, for instance, in 1906 would be the creation of the Department of Egyptian Art, and in 1912, the Department of Arms and Armors. And by establishing these new departments, then it would actually make it easier to acquire more, right? Mm -hmm. And, And do a better job of displaying it. It's also around this period and that the Met stops being a museum above the people and really starts being an institution for the people. And in fact, the museum would become quite, quite popular. One illustration of this is in 1909, with what we might call one of the Metropolitan Museum's first blockbuster shows, which, by the way, these blockbuster shows are a type of exhibition that the Met is very, very good at. 
And by blockbuster, you mean a an exhibition that usually features some kind of superstar artist, um, super famous, and is designed to draw enormous crowds. Which is almost an opposite philosophy of what they had just like 20 years ago, where they didn't want to cram it with a bunch of people, right? <laughs> when they were willing to let people on Sunday freeze into statuary. <laughs> yes. Well, in fall of 1909, America was celebrating the Hudson Fulton Celebration, which was a nationwide celebration of American progress. And, you know, here in New York, that manifests into like magnificent parades through the streets. You have Wilbur Wright flying an airplane over New York Harbor for the very first time in history. Well, who, which civic leader is involved in that? But of course, J.P. Morgan. And so naturally, the Met is going to get involved with the Hudson Fulton celebration with two very popular shows, okay? One um, on Dutch paintings in honor of Henry Hudson, who sailed into New York Harbor in 1609. Sailing on behalf of the Dutch. Yes. But a second show on the American industrial arts from the colonial era was perhaps more influential. And these were industrial arts, things that had not been typically considered works of art like silverware or housewares and furniture. So, I mean, it was innovative because of that and also because it was... American industrial arts. In addition, there were also American painters on display here. So in this big, splashy way, the Met had essentially created the demand for the appreciation of American arts and crafts. And so an American wing, which featured American arts, would open in 1924. And by the 1920s, the museum had also changed in ways that made it Uh, more inviting, more user-friendly. I mean, the shape of the museum that we know today really comes into focus here in the early 20th century. So you had set up what the museum looked like before with this great hall and Hunt's original design. Well, in 1908, modifications of this design were taken on by Charles McKim. Of McKim Eden White. Yeah, I mean, and, by the way, not for nothing, who had just designed J.P. Morgan's sumptuous library over on Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. So McKim's modifications included a thousand-foot expansion along Fifth Avenue. So we had that central building that had been designed by Hunt. Now it would stretch farther south and farther north a thousand feet with the creation of many new wings in the building that almost fly out from the center here, you know, if you were to orient yourself with the current building today. And the ones further south, for instance, were the Greek and Roman galleries, and the Egyptian and armor galleries were in those new wings that were developed north of the Great Hall. So McKim would be extending Hunt's original central part of the museum Uh, north and south. And that would also kind of like hide from the street, right? The collection, the various collection of buildings that that could be found behind it, just west of Fifth Avenue. Right. Perhaps the less aesthetically pleasing buildings to some people. The hodgepodge. (laughs) Yes. But let's go back to the Egyptian wing. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. when, When did you say that department was formed? 
Well, so that was in 1906, and that would indeed be housed in one of these uh, new wings that I was talking about. But it was, you know, it was no longer sufficient for the Met to simply wait for gifts from wealthy donors uh, or to look out on the market for pieces to fill in this, this Egyptian collection. So the Met went excavating themselves from 1906 to 1936, with an additional season uh, later in the 1940s. Thousands of important treasures, more than half of the Met's Egyptian collection today, were obtained during these excavations um, through a system known as partage. Partage? Sounds fancy. Sounds French. It sounds like a French hairdo. What What exactly does partage mean? Does it come from partager, as in to share? Yes, to share. It's an arrangement with a federal government whereby the museum would come in to a site and would bring an expert team and equipment, you know, and all the financing to excavate a site. And in exchange, they would be allowed to share the riches that were unearthed there. So the museum would get half and the, the host country would get the other half? Yes, Egypt in this case, or Iraq and Iran and other places they excavated. And I'm guessing that this is no longer done today, right? Partage, partage is no longer a thing. Right. Well, the Met does not participate in partage anymore. I did read some fun debates. I went down the partage rabbit hole online um, <laughs> about how some people think it might be a good idea to bring back. But here at the Met today, the fruits of partage of the museum's former usage of this as a way to get artifacts is on display. And Tom, the excavation and removal of old buildings was not relegated to ancient lands. The Met actually sometimes saved old structures here in New York itself. Wait, what? The the museum was like excavating old Dutch farmhouses, breweries? What were what were they excavating? Remember, remember that American wing I told you about a little bit earlier? Uh-huh. Well, today it's beautifully fronted by an 1820s Greek revival building. This is the face of an old bank, the Branch Bank of the United States, which which actually sat on Wall Street. In 1915, the building was demolished, but they moved the entire facade into the American wing. It's a jaw-dropper. Today, I mean, nothing is nicer than having, you know, a cup of coffee and a snack in the cafe (laughs) in the atrium just outside of the American wing. But I just want to mention that for these first several decades, that facade, that American wing, would have also been outside because that was a separate building that was attached through other wings, but the atrium didn't exist yet. Now, the first half of the 20th century will bring in a lot of new ideas and different kinds of collections, kind of opening up the profile of the Met here. First of all, we get photography, finally, thanks to an extremely important gift by Alfred Stiglitz in 1928. Um, A decade later... The Washington Heights outpost of the museum called The Cloisters opens, displaying medieval European art and housed in a building made from four French abbeys. And to tie it back to what I was talking about earlier, about the great benefactors of the, mm-hmm. of the museum, the cloister, in fact, was in fact the, the collection owned by 
John D. Rockefeller, so uh-huh. who who gifted it to the museum. Now, for more information on the cloisters, on the history of the cloisters, stay tuned till the end of the show. Another major acquisition during this period is the Museum of Costume Art, which merged with the Met in 1946 and became the Costume Institute. We have a story on our website about the Institute's interesting roots, um, actually uh, from the Lower East Side and from theatrical costumes. And it's very interesting how central this Institute has actually become to the modern Met, thanks to blockbuster shows and, of course, the Met Gala. Which, by the way, gives us an excuse to mention the names Rihanna and <laughs> oh, Lady I know. Gaga. Tom, did you see that Zach Posen dress that Claire Danes wore in 2016? Magical. Any, anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. Back to the um, show. Today's institute is housed in the Anna Wintour Costume Center, which opened in 2014, named, of course, for the iconic editor and chief of Vogue. Now, during World War II, the Met was extremely involved in the retrieval of artwork and valuable archives as the Allied forces advanced across Europe in the later years of the war. Now, this was called the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Program, but more popularly referred to in the press as the Monuments Men. And to be clear, some of them, some of the Monuments Men were, were women, And speaking of women involved here at the Met, it's in the 1950s that the Met trustee board finally elected women to the trustees here, including Helen Rogers-Reed, who was the president of the New York Herald Tribune, and Minnie Cushing, wife of William Vincent Astor. Now, interestingly, Tom, do you know who was a huge proponent of putting women on the board of trustees? In the 1940s and 50s, uh, uh, Mayor LaGuardia, no. Uh, Robert Moses. <gasps> you don't say. Yeah, well, as Parks Commissioner, he was an ex officio trustee on the board at the Met, but he bristled at their conservative, old fashioned ways of thinking. You can imagine how these, how he must have butted heads many times with people on the Met during the 1940s. But you know, one of the one of the changes he thought they should make was having more women on the on the board, which finally did happen in the 1950s. Well, good for Bob. But then jumping into the 60s, I I find it interesting that by, say, the late 60s, the Met still wasn't finished building. Because if you if you would look at it from the from Fifth Avenue, the building Mm -hmm. would basically look like it does today. But once you got inside and, and beyond, you know, Hunt and McKim's initial galleries, it was still kind of this hodgepodge of structures. And these new wings weren't necessarily linked to each other. Right. What we needed was a new master plan to fix this. And in the late 1960s, a new director named Thomas Hoving would go for it again, but this time the museum would pretty much carry out the plan. In the late 1960s here, which is a pretty turbulent time in New York, not to mention, I guess, you know, everywhere else... Correct. Society was changing. Uh, The Met was attempting to change as well. For example, appointing women to its board, although one of its other early efforts would be seen as a major misstep. And that was the exhibition Harlem on My Mind, Cultural Capital of Black America, 1900 to 1968, an exhibition which opened in January 1969. 
I mean, that sounds like an interesting show. What was it a misstep? Well, because the exhibition was pretty strange. It, it consisted mostly of photographs, and it didn't actually include any artwork by black artists, nor had African-Americans been directly involved in organizing the show, which was pretty, you know, it was a pretty baffling oversight uh, for an exhibition in the city's most prominent art museum about Harlem in the 20th century. And furthermore, the main essay in the exhibition's catalog was written by a 17-year-old student and contained explicit anti-Semitic slurs. Yikes! It prompted a furious response from the public, and Hoving apologized for it, calling it an error in judgment. Quote, Holland Carter, the current co-chief art critic for The New York Times, wrote in 2015 about visiting the exhibition um, at this supercharged time in American history, with Nixon in the White House, war in Vietnam grinding on, and the killing of Martin Luther King Jr., just nine months before the exhibition opened. He wrote about how he walked through the exhibition confused because it was all photos. He wrote, quote, I'd never seen an art show so much like a science museum display. I didn't know what to do with any of this, so I was left thinking, what was that about? And black artists, meanwhile, banded together and became activists forming the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, which was co-founded by an African-American artist named Benny Andrews, who was a painter and a printmaker and who had been active in the city's art scene uh, since moving to the Lower East Side in the late 50s. So the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition then picketed outside the Met throughout the run of the show, uh, but also in front of the MoMA and the Whitney as well, fighting for these museums to include more works by African-American artists. I should also note, I don't know what, what to make of this, but the show, heavily controversial, um, was also a huge hit. Yeah, 75,000 people packed into it the first week, and hundreds of thousands would eventually attend. And it, it doesn't mean that the attendees liked what they saw, but they came. Drawn to the controversy, probably. And then meanwhile, later that same year, 1969, the Met would roll out the biggest celebration that it had ever organized. Kicking off their centennial celebration. Yeah, they would, they would in fact celebrate that first hundred years for 18 months with blockbuster exhibitions, um, with a centennial gala on April 13th, 1970. It was a, it was a soiree that was hosted by Brooke Astor, who was a museum trustee. It featured dancing in four different ballrooms that had been set up in various galleries. But it wasn't just about dancing that day, because Hoving, the director, took the opportunity to also introduce his newest master plan, which had been designed by the firm Kevin Roche, John Dinkaloo and Associates. And their idea was to finally bring the whole museum together, linking all of those disparate parts and the standalone wings with new galleries and atriums and covered courtyards in a move that would essentially double the size of the museum. And what were they designing? Well, for starters, giant atriums or glass pavilions, because just a few years before, in 1965... An ancient Egyptian temple dating back to about 10 BC called the Temple of Dendur had been offered by Egypt to the United States. 
and there were 20 different cities that were clamoring for it. So many, so many different places were clamoring to host the Temple of Dender that it created a craze that the press called the Dender Derby. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Egyptiomania of the 60s. And director Hoving wanted it, of course, for the Met, although they faced stiff competition from the Smithsonian. But in April of 1967, a panel that had been appointed by President Johnson announced the Metropolitan Museum the winner. In a front page article in the New York Times announcing the decision on April 25th, 1967, Joseph Noble, a senior museum official, stated that, quote, if we get it, we plan to place it in a new extension of our North Wing, he said. The wing is on Fifth Avenue between 82nd and 83rd Street. The extension would adjoin the wing in what is now a parking lot next to the Egyptian sculpture court. We would hope to have it ready in time for our centennial in 1970, he stated. I mean, 1970, I mean, that's just three years later. That just seems very ambitious. <laughs> right. That It would take a few more years, but it would be installed in this new wing called the Sackler Wing in 1978. But you can see then how the museum was using this amazing gift, you know, from Egypt to help push along this new master plan. And I mean, the Temple of Dender is one of the superstars of the museum. I don't think anyone would deny that. No. It's one of my favorite places. The, the, the space itself is extraordinary, and it's just weird to think that that was a parking lot. <laughs> I know, right? And this just underscores how they were sort of using those empty spaces between wings, filling them in, and then you know linking all of these disparate wings uh, with atriums and such. And, and furthermore, they would, they would build a matching atrium gallery um, on the south side of the museum to house the collections of Nelson Rockefeller, which would become the Michael Rockefeller Wing for the Arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, which opened in 1982. And that master plan also had plans for the American Wing as well. And modern and contemporary art also got a new wing, the Lila Atchison Wallace Wing, uh, which opened in 1987 and which was named for another major benefactor, Lila Atchison Wallace, who founded Reader's Digest with her husband DeWitt Wallace in 1922. And to see modern and contemporary art in the Metropolitan Museum, well, that's quite an accomplishment. Indeed, it would have blown Cessnola's mind. <laughs> So it now seems like the museum is really, I guess, being filled out. Is this making it a more unified structure? Did it feel more unified? It at least brought all the wings into uh, inside a unified rectangular footprint, right? The flow mm -hmm. of the museum, of course, is another thing. You know, as anybody could tell you who's tried to get from Degas to Dender, you know, sometimes you're looking for these little like doorways and sometimes sometimes I get the feeling that you experience you know when you're at Ikea and you decide to go rogue and intentionally go off course and like pass through a secret doorway yes by yeah. the futons and then boom you're at the cafeteria you know <laughs> it's like oh there's it doesn't always make perfect sense but it is undeniably an improvement to get more windows and more natural light into the museum. Oh, all over the place. I mean, there were atriums built uh, between wings that that now have sculpture. 
um, including South of the American Wing, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. and that also really opened up the museum to Central Park. Are all these changes under Hoving? And under his successor, Philippe de Montebello, who took over as director of the museum in 1978. You know, they'd make adjustments and several notable additions over the years. And Roche would continue to work designing the museum spaces for nearly 50 years. Well, one space that he definitely had no hand in designing was the Met Breuer, which was a satellite museum which opened in 2016 in the former home of the Whitney Museum. Right, yeah. The the Whitney Museum of American Art had moved out of its iconic brutalist building uh, that was designed by Marcel Breuer and completed in 1966. And the Met used the space for modern and contemporary galleries and exhibitions. They closed the Met Breuer in March 2020 due to COVID and never reopened, um, as the Frick Collection was already scheduled to take over the space this year. Now, we didn't have time uh, to go through the whole list of major blockbuster exhibitions that the museum has put on over the years. We didn't get to talk of 1978's Treasures of Tutankhamen, uh, which saw 1,360,957 people pass through its galleries, and which was surpassed just two years ago, Greg, in 2018, by Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination, which saw a whopping 1.6 million people attend. Dazzled by all of the Pope hats and a religious-influenced haute couture. But even with those blockbusters, uh, the Met in recent years has had to clarify their ticket and admission policy. Because the museum famously, for years, allowed a pay-as-you-wish policy, even if it was kind of hard to figure out because you'd, you'd note that the ad- admission prices listed were, quote, suggested, and then chances are you might get a dirty look, you know, when you were handing over 50 cents or something for a ticket. Not that we ever did that. No, sometimes it was a dollar back in my broke 90s days. But they, they made this change because, of course, the Met is extremely expensive to run. According to a piece in The Times in 2018, it costs $305 million a year to run the museum, and the admission charges really only account for about 14% of that budget, or only about $43 million. And their admissions revenues were falling because only about 17% of visitors were actually paying full price. So now don't you feel bad? So in 2018, the Met revised their policy and now the pay-as-you-wish policy is only available to the residents of New York State and students from the tri-state area. So everybody else, you're going to have to cough up the full price, $25, to get inside the same that you would have to pay to go inside the MoMA or the Whitney. Which brings us up to today and the 150th anniversary of the charter of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and a brand new exhibition on the Met's illustrious history. But of course, it being 2020 and the pandemic and the lockdown, how they managed to mark this special occasion. Yeah, how do you celebrate when, in fact, the Met was forced to close down in March? These were questions that I posed to Andrea Bayer, 
the Deputy Director for Collections and Administration at the Met, and the organizer of the exhibit, Making the Met. So given the the museum story is so complex, how in the world then did you as the organizer of this exhibition go about trying to distill down 150 years of Met history into one coherent exhibition? How do you do that? It took a lot of time uh, to begin with. Um, we knew that we, we wanted to tell the full history of the museum, but we absolutely did not want to do it in a plotting decade by decade, and then this happened, and then that happened mm-hmm. kind of way. Um, after a huge amount of discussion in which at some time we were juggling proposals for a thousand different objects to be in the show... <laughs> We whittled it down to 10 what we're calling episodes or stories or moments. We wanted to show things that really showed the museum at a time when its DNA changed, when it went off in a completely different Mm. direction. And then I have to tell you, we're living through an 11th, and we have now factored that into everything we're talking about. Yeah, and we'll get to that in in one second. Um, But... Mm -hmm. I'm curious about your your decision not to go chronologically, even though I guess these themes kind of do go chronologically, right, in order to have some sense of its history and starting at the very beginning. And as you you make your way around the exhibit, you are moving room to room, sort of progressing through time. Yes, yes. And they come in clusters. So obviously the founding decades are the moment around 1870. That's perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. But then we saw, for example, that three really important things were happening around the turn of the century, from the 1890s to about World War I, and many of them spearheaded by J. Pierpont Morgan, who, of course, was this sort of titanic figure in the whole development. And the board of directors president. And on the board of directors, yes. Those are the sections we call art for all, princely aspirations, and the archaeology section, because, Mm -hmm. of course, he's the great proponent for archaeology in the museum as well. The 1920s is an incredibly interesting moment for us. The American wing gets founded. Havemeyer bequest comes in. Mm -hmm. We really start to grapple with modern art, working with Alfred Stieglitz, etc. So we could see that the moments were clustered. Mm-hmm. And tackling some of these difficult questions, um, I mean, even in the earlier rooms, like you said, around the turn of the century, and you've got this princely mm-hmm. aspirations, you know, all about these major donors to the museum, some of yeah. New York society's biggest names, like Morgan and later Havemeyer and many others, who would enrich the museum with these, you know, with thousands of pieces of art each. Yeah. And then at the same time, you write about the art for all sort of movement, if you will. So there's this kind of, mm-hmm. kind of democratizing aspect of what the museum seems to be turning to. So how are those two forces kind of working? It seems to me like you've got elitist on one hand and sort of democratic notion of art on the other. How do you make sense of that? Or do you make sense of it by just accepting that they're both running at the same time? Well, I'm going to answer that tentatively. 
It is absolutely true that those two things were distinct and separate branches of collecting, let's say. That in, on the one hand, this desire to build study rooms for textiles, for mm-hmm. works of art on paper, so on, that anyone could sign up for and that were specifically open so that American New York artisans, craftspeople, artists could come and learn from other works of art. That was a true goal. Then you have Morgan and his buddies and other people from that moment. Benjamin Altman is a favorite of, of mine, a very sensitive, uh, broad-minded collector. Who gave some Rembrandts, no less. Yes. Yeah, 13, he believed he had. They want to make the, the Met a really on the par with the Louvre and, and other great European museums. And um, when Altman dies, somebody writes, and now this is a museum that can be compared with the Louvre and the Prado in mm-hmm. Spain. They're aiming that high. However, it doesn't mean that they didn't respect the other kind of collecting. So, for example, Morgan is the person who brings in the second director, Sir James Purden Clark, who is from the VNA and who believes in the kind of material culture collecting that the Met ultimately does, and who also believes in tremendous accessibility. He's the person who, for example, opens the galleries to people sketching. He Mm. allows it to happen. He wants artists to come in. He's a Morgan protege. And ditto, Morgan is the person who goes and buys the entire contents of the Henschel Gallery Mm. in Paris. And... The things in that gallery also went from great treasures all the way down to individual, excuse me, individual pieces of paneling from rooms and so on. So again, the, that material culture side of it. And I believe that that you wrote that there were what three hundred and sixty four crates or something that had to be shipped back. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I mean, really, they had to build a whole wing for this. The Morgan Wing. <laughs> the Morgan Wing had to be built for this, and it became the center of our Department of Decorative Arts with one of our first great curators, um, Valentina. Um, and so well, the collecting strands came together, is what I'm saying, in a way. Yeah, one thing I noticed when I was, you know, having gone through this exhibit and then read through the catalog um, then I just walked through some of my favorite galleries afterwards. I headed over to the 19th century European and was walking through the Impressionists. And suddenly mm-hmm. I was seeing mm-hmm. all of these names that I had just been introduced That's to right. over in the exhibit. I, I saw the Havemeyers all over the 19th century, you know, Impressionists. That's right. <laughs> and and yeah. you realize these these paintings came through a process. They came from people. It, That's it, right. It wasn't like a royal acquisition. It was the exact opposite. Our collection is entirely dependent on the interests, the passions, the tastes of mostly New Yorkers because of the quests and gifts that they gave. And also because the curators who were able to buy and add to their departments are also working within a New York sphere, let's say. The kind Mm -hmm. of things they're interested in are the things that New Yorkers are interested in. when you talk about the Havemeyers, mm-hmm. the Havemeyers are a great example of um, a, a, when we were studying them of, of having to be uh, both recognize their the brilliance of what they did, while at the same time recognizing that um, 
for us today, looking back on the way that we lived, we have questions about that. So H.O. Havemeyer ran the biggest sugar refinery in the country. It became Domino Sugar, and he was therefore caught up in all of the controversy about what the sugar industry means, Mm -hmm. both in terms of the people who had to work the fields, mostly in the Caribbean, they did not work for him, mm-hmm. right? He was in the refinery side. But in the refinery, with labor conditions being what they were in the first decades of the 20th century, very difficult. Yeah. You have that side of it. Then you have Louisine, who is a significant suffragist. She raises a huge amount of money by doing an exhibition of works from her collection, the proceeds of which go towards the movement. Um, She gives speeches. She's arrested in front of the White House in 1919 as they're protesting uh, about Woodrow Wilson's recalcitrance in terms of women's rights. So she's a great progressive force. And then there's the collecting, which is extraordinary, both for the French Impressionists, but also for their passion for the glassware of Tiffany, Mm -hmm. for Islamic art. For Asian art. Chinese and Japanese art. Just extraordinary. So all of those things come together. Yeah, I found that that was interesting. And it made me think then, because what, one or two rooms later, you're reading about the centennial in 1970. Uh, There's a photograph of what looks like a really fun sort of Truman Capote-esque ball. (laughs) I kind of wish I had been at. (laughs) Yes, the Gary Winogrand. We all wish we had been at that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering, how how do you think, um, how did Met leadership deal with those kinds of questions at the centennial? Were these kinds of things addressed, or is this what we're doing? Are, are we looking with more critical eyes today? Um, every generation takes on what they have to take on and what is brought to their attention. So at the time of the centennial, there was, of course, a, a serious misstep, and that was with the exhibition Harlem on My Mind, which uh, was meant to be a probing, interesting exhibition about the art and culture of Harlem, which included a sort of commission of artists who were meant to be giving advice, but it wasn't taken. And in the end, that exhibition turned out to be mostly about documents, Um, about uh, newspapers and photographs of photographs, and it was not the exhibition that one would have wanted. Mm -hmm. That misstep haunted people for quite a long time Um, and continues to in a certain way because it was a a time when the museum took on a subject and then couldn't fulfill its potential. Mm. However, having said that, around that time, the contemporary, the, the name of the modern art department went back and forth, contemporary, modern and contemporary, etc. They hired someone, Lowry Stokes Sims, who was first working with communities across the five boroughs. So she herself was trying to heal some of the wounds that had been created by that. But also she was given the charge of buying works of art and, and eventually put together a notable group of works by women, by indigenous artists, and by black artists. So a little bit under the radar, she was able to start to bring into the collection exactly those kind of works 
that Harlem under my mind in the end didn't really exhibit. Yeah. So at the centennial, that was something that they couldn't quite get their heads around properly. But at the same time, they were expanding the museum. So this starts under Thomas Hoving and continues in full force under Philippe de Montebello. They're expanding the museum to create an entirely new canon of art for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Department of AAOA, the Arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, is created in the Michael Rockefeller wing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, showing African art, which previously had been co- shown in the so-called Museum of Primitive Art, mm-hmm. the pre-Columbian works of art, many of which had been exiled to other institutions. The Museum of Natural History and the Brooklyn Museum were brought back. And the Oceanic Collection is a place there as well, that being the passion of Nelson Rockefeller's son, uh, Michael Rockefeller. Yeah. They completely invent the Islamic wing. We have collected Islamic art, but it's the way it was shown is completely different. The Asian galleries explode. Yeah. So a whole new canon is being created, a gl- truly global canon. So obviously, you, th- this exhibit... Your exhibition opened on August 29th of 2020, although it was slated to open months earlier. But of course, it was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic um, and then the museum right. shut down. So how how did the pandemic play into the, the bigger story here? You mentioned that really it, it we're in a new phase of the museum's history right now. Right. So, first of all, there was the shock of closing. Mm -hmm. We were about four and a half days out from being finished installing the entire thing. Um, And we had to pull down the shutters. We spent the next month very carefully following. um, We had uh, what we called collections monitors, teams of conservators and other people who worked directly with the collections who came through the building on a weekly basis, making sure that everything was okay. So the exhibition itself was being continuously checked. Uh, We had some fantastic photography of it during that time because the building was in darkness. I I went through with them on a number of occasions. I've, I've never seen the building in such absolute darkness as it was during this period. So... We had to be very careful about anything that could have gone wrong with the collections. Wow. As it became clear to us that this was not going to be a week's closure or a two-week's closure, but that it was a serious, serious situation, Mm -hmm. uh, various things happened. One of which was that we began to think about the museum in other periods of crisis and what it had gone through, and we did some investigation about that. And by crisis, I mean both public health crises, but also crises, financial crises, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, smack in the middle of all of this came the the terrible moment of George Floyd's killing and the, the call for social justice, which our staff and community joined wholeheartedly and in a very, I hope, profound and long-lasting way. Mm-hmm. in which we began to re-examine our own practices, our own history, and to be able to understand better um, how to be anti-racist. And we decided that when we reopened, 
uh, we wanted it to be clear to our visitors that we had reflected on all of this. And so we went through a rather profound rereading of our labels, of our overview text. We added some things. We edited others. Uh, we created that opening wall that you go by, in which we talk about this as an anniversary year transformed, mm-hmm. um, and in which we also put on the wall the name of every single person who had was involved with the exhibition. We wanted people to know that when we say it takes a village to do something, it truly, not even a village, it takes a small town of people to actually create an exhibition like that. So for us, it was about our staff, our community, and now our future and what that's going to look like. Well, we are so happy that you've reopened, and we're, we feel so fortunate um, to be able to take in this history, this 150-year history of the Metropolitan Museum. Andrea Bear, thank you so much for joining us on The Bowery Boys. Thank you so much for inviting me. And so that was the epic history of the <laughs> Metropolitan Museum of Art. Happy anniversary, Matt. For photos and images and maybe some artwork, head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We'll be sharing photos of the Met and also some photos from the current exhibition. I want to give a special thank you to Tina Rivers Ryan, who's currently an assistant curator at the Albright Knox Gallery in in Buffalo, New York, but a few years ago, she was a curator's assistant at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She gave us a wonderful tour of the place and was hoping that one day we would do the history of the Met, and we've finally gotten to it. So thank you, Tina, and we hope that we did it justice. We'd also like to thank Andrea Bayer for being on the show. A huge thank you to all of our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com with their small monthly donations. It's because of you that Greg and I are able to devote ourselves full-time to producing the Bowery Boys. And uh, for those on Patreon, you will get bonus audio um, from us from time to time. For instance, in a couple weeks, you'll get a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which we're excited to present to you. We have picked a doozy of an escapist film. Do uh, you know how early in the show I said to stay tuned for more on the cloisters? Oh, yeah. What were, you, what were you talking about? Well, patrons will get a bonus episode, a, a shorter episode called Two Tales from the Met. This will be a special recording for those who support us on Patreon. And it will feature a brand new recorded show on the time that the Mona Lisa came to the Met, and a little adventure that we did not get time for here in the show. And I will also include a new 2020 edit of an older show that I recorded a few years ago on the history of the Cloisters. So that'll all be in one place and a bonus for those who support us on Patreon.com. Head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. And thank you so much. And by the way, you'll be joining other patrons like Heather B. from Manhattan, Ben D. and Scott O. from Brooklyn, Lorette V. from Long Island, Aaron G. from Colorado, Eka T. from Ohio, Sylvia A. from Missouri, Melanie C., and Alyssa S. from Canada. By the way, Greg, 
Eka in Ohio, she and I were emailing. She actually listened to the entire catalog during lockdown. She started at the very first available episode and made her way up through 340 shows. And remarkably, it did not drive her insane. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe it did. Um, well, thank you, Eka. And thanks to all those who support us on Patreon. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.